Chapter Twelve of Cripps the Carrier, by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve, Mister John Smith. Meanwhile, all Beckley and villages round were seething with a ferment of excitement and contradiction. Esther Cripps had been strictly ordered by the authorities to hold her tongue, and so far as in her lay, she did so. But there were others, the squire's three men, and even the carrier himself, who had many things to think, that they were pretty sure to say some of them. One or two of them had wives, and though these women could not be called by their very worst friends, inquisitive, it was not right and lawful that they should be debarred of everything. They did all they could not to know any more than they were really bound to know, and whatever was forced upon them had no chance of going any further. This made several women look at one another slyly, each knowing more than the other, and nodding while sounding the other's ignorance, until, with one accord, they grew provoked at being treated so, and truth being multiplied to its cube became, of course, infinite error. Now Mrs. Fermitage, having been obliged to return to Cowley, Mary Hookham's mother had established her power by this time, and being, as her daughter had pronounced, a conspicuous member of the females, she exerted herself about all that was said, and saw the other side of everything. She never went to no public house. Nobody could ever say that of her. But perhaps she could put two and two together every bit as well as them that did. It had been her fortune to acquire exceptional experience, or, as she put it more plainly, she had a seed of many things. And the impressions left thereby upon her idiosyncrasy, or, in her own words, what she come to think, was and were that nothing could be true that she had not known the like of. This was the secret of her success in life, which, however, as yet bore no proportion to her merits. She frankly scouted as a pack of stuff everything to which her history afforded no vivid parallel. In a word, she believed only what she had seen. Now incredulity is a grand power. To be able to say, oh, don't tell me, or none of your stuff, when the rest of the audience, stricken with awe, is gaping, confers at once the esteem of superior intellect and vigor, and when there are good high people who derive comfort from the denial, the chances are that active skeptic does not get the worst of it. Mrs. Hookham plainly declared that Esther's tale was neither more or less than a trumpery cock-and-bull story. She would not call it a parcel of lies, because the poor girl might have dreamed it, Walking in the snow was no more than walking in one's sleep. She knew that from her own experience, and if there had been no snow as yet, that made her all the more sure to be right. The air was full of it, and of course it would have more power overhead. Depend on it, she had seen a bush, if indeed she did see anything, and being so dazed by the weather, she had gone and dreamed the rest of it. Beckley, on the other hand, having known Esther ever since she toddled out of her cradle, and knowing her brothers, the carrier, the baker, and the butcher, and having no experience yet of Mother Hookham's wisdom, as good as told the latter lady not to be so bounceable. She must not come into this parish and pretend to know more about things that belong to it than those who were bred and born there. But Mrs. Hookham's opinion was, in one way, very important, however little weight it carried at the dusty anvil. Mr. Oglander himself had to depend for his food entirely on Mrs. Hookham's efforts. For Betty, the cook, went purely off her head after all she had gone through, and they put her in bed with a little barley water and much malt liquor in a nobler form. 
and though Mrs. Hookham at her time of life was reluctant so to demean herself, she found all the rest such a Noah's compass that she roused up the fires of departed youth and flourished with the basting ladle. A clever, well-conditioned dame with a will of her own is somebody. Now, sir, she cried, rushing into the squire with a basin of first-rate oxtail soup upon that melancholy New Year's Day, you have been out in the snow again. No use denying it, sir. I can see by the chattering of your teeth. I call it a bad, wicked thing to go on so, flying in the face of the Lord like that. You are a most kind and good soul, Mrs. Hookham, but surely you would not have me sit with my hands crossed doing nothing. No, no, surely not. Take the spoon in one hand and the basin in the other. You owe it to yourself to keep up your strength, and to someone else as well, good sir. I have no one else now to owe it to, the old man answered, sadly tucking his napkin into his waistcoat pockets. Yes, you have. You have your Miss Gracie, alive and kicking, as sure as I be, and with a deal more of life in front of her, though scarce a week passes but what I takes my regular dose of culminy. Ah, if it had not been for that, I never could have been twenty year a widow. Don't cry, Mrs. Hookham. I beg you not to cry. You have many good children to look after, and there is still abundance of calomel. But why do you talk about my darling? Because, sir, please God, it means to see you spend many a happy year together. Lord have mercy if I took for granted every trouble as come upon me. Who could have tried for to cheat me this day? My goodness, don't go for to swallow the bone, sir. <laughs> to be sure not. No, I was not thinking. Of course, there are bones in every tale, and a heap of bones in them Cripps's tale, sir, as won't go down with me nohow. Have faith in the mercy of the Lord, sir, and in your own experience. That is exactly what I try to do. There cannot be one in the world so bad as to hurt my Gracie. Mrs. Hookham, you never can have seen anybody like her. She was so full of life and kindness that that everybody who knew her seemed to have her in their own family. She never made pretense to be above herself or anyone, and she entered into everybody's trouble quite as if she had brought it on. She never asked them any questions whether it might have been their own fault. She gave away all her own money first before she came to me for more. She was so simple and so pleasant and so full of playful ways but there, when I think of that, it makes me almost as bad as you women are. Take out the dish. I am very much obliged to you. Not a bit, sir, not a bit as yet, the brisk dame answered with tears on her cheeks. But before very long, you will own that you was, when you find every word I say come true. Oh, my! Oh, that startled me. Somebody coming the short way from the fields. That wonderful man is always prowling about, unbeknown to anyone. They don't like me in the village much, civil as I am to all of them, but as sure as six is half a dozen, that smith is the one they ought to hate. If he is there, show him in at once, said the squire without further argument, and let no one come interrupting us. This was very hard upon Mrs. Hookham, and she could not help showing it in her answer. Oh, to be sure, sir, oh, to be sure not. What is my poor opinion compared to his? Ah, well, it is a fine thing to be a man. The man for whose sake she was thus cast out seemed to be of the same opinion. 
He walked and looked and spoke as if it was indeed a fine thing to be a man, but the finest of all things to be the man inside his own cloth and leather, and likely to be at close quarters a dangerous antagonist, and the set of his jaws and the glance of his eyes showed that no want of manhood would at the critical moment disable him. His face was a strong red color, equally spread all over it, as if he lived much in the open air, and fed well, and enjoyed his food. "'John Smith, your worship, John Smith,' he said without troubling Mrs. Hookham. "'I hope to see your worship better. Don't rise, I beg you. May I shut the door? Oh, Mary, your tea is waiting.' "'Mary, indeed,' cried Widow Hookham, and graciously departing. "'Young man, address my daughter thus.' "'Now what have you done, Smith? What have you done?' the old gentleman asked, stooping over him. "'Or have you done nothing at all, as usual? You tell me to have patience every day, and every day I have less and less.' "'The elements are against us, sir. If the weather had been anything but what it is, I must have known everything long ago.' "'Stop, sir, stop. It is no idle excuse, as you seem to fancy. It is not the snow that I speak of, it is the intense and deadly cold.' It keeps all but the very strong people indoors. How can any man talk when his beard is frozen? Look, sir. From his short brown beard he took lumps of ice, beginning to thaw at the warmth of the room, and cast them into the fire to hiss. Mr. Oglander gazed as if he thought that his visitor took a liberty, but one that could not matter much. Go on, sir, with your report, he said. Well, sir, in this chain of crime... Mr. Smith replied in a sprightly manner. We have found one very important link. What is it, Smith? Don't keep me waiting. Don't fear me. I am now prepared to stand anything, whatever. Well, sir, we have discovered at least the body of your worship's daughter. The squire bowed and hid his face. By the aid of faith, he had been hoping against hope till it came to this. Then he looked up with his bright old eyes for the moment very steady and said with a firm though hollow voice. The will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done, Smith. The will of the Lord shall not be done, cried Mr. Smith emphatically and striking his thick knees with his fist, until the man who has done it shall be swung, squire, swung. Make up your mind to that, your worship. You may safely make up your mind to that. What good will it do me? The father asked, talking with himself alone. Will it ever bring back my girl? My child, bereaved I am, but it cannot be long. I shall meet her in a better world, Smith. To be sure your worship will, with the angels and archangels, but to my mind that will be no satisfaction till the man has swung for it. Excuse me for a moment, will you, Mr. Smith, excuse me? I have no right to be overcome, and I thought I had got beyond all that. Ring the bell, and they will bring you cold sirloin and a jug of ale. Help yourself, and don't mind me. I will come back directly. No, thank you, I can walk alone. How many have had much worse to bear? You will find the undercut the best. End of chapter 12